Okay. Well, today I want to look at Matthew 5, and we're going to start in verse 13. Um, some of the things I like to study is when there's an aspect or a statement or whatever that just doesn't make sense to me. Then i got to, you know, hunt it down a little bit more. And this is one of those. So let's look at five, uh, Matthew 5.13. And it says, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt that has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Okay? Um, when we look at this verse, there's really not a definition for it. Uh, so therefore, we kind of put our own experiences and our own understanding into what it means. We all have our own experience of what salt is, right? And, and we have our own explanation of what that would be because we interject that onto that. Um, we know that salt affects its environment simply by being what it is, not by saying doing anything. In the same way, if we're going to be salt, it'll simply be by being what we are, not by saying doing anything. Salt is simply uh, is what it's meant to be. It's salt. Okay. Um, and I'm guessing that every sermon you've ever heard on salt talks about the preservation or the flavoring aspect. Uh, you know, kind of like if you just take a little sprinkling of salt, a little sprinkling of Christians, that somehow that makes the atmosphere, you know, uh, sweeter or that we are somehow like a museum uh, of society. We we, we hold it up and we save it. We, we have it and it, it stays just like, it, just like that. But the Luke Gospel tells us what it's meant in Matthew. So if we go back and we look at Luke 14, and that's in 34, 35, it's going to tell us a little bit more about what salt is. It says salt's good for seasoning. But if salt were to lose its flavor, how could it be restored again? It will never be useful again, not even fit for the soil or the manure pile. Okay? <laughs> Pretty straightforward <laughs> right, right there. there. Um, so there Jesus defines what he means. He is referring to the soil, the land, or dung pile. This tells us what salt was used for. Okay, we're talking, we're back in Israel. And um, it was scraped up from the Dead Sea, which is 28% salt solution. And now that's not um, sodium chloride alone, uh, but a mixture of various salts. There's all different kinds in that, in that uh, mix. And one of the main ones is potassium chloride, which is known as potash. If you're a gardener, you fertilizer, you know that every plant needs three kinds of fertilizer, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Okay? Phosphate is to develop the roots, nitrogen develops the leaves, and the plant needs potash to develop the flowers and the fruit. A balanced fertilizer is going to include all three. So the salt, which was scraped up from the Dead Sea, was largely used as fertilizer. And mainly because of the potash in it, along with the other things too, which is uh, one of the things is magnesium bromide, and all 
a bunch of other major salts. Uh, there was also sodium chloride, um, quite a bit of it, and of course this was used in the kitchen. But Jesus here, because we look at Luke, we see that he's thinking about its use as a fertilizer. Mm. He said on the soil, used on the soil. And the soil here is exactly the same word as earth in Matthew. So salt of the earth, salt of the fertilizer. The salt you put on the soil to make things grow. And then we're going to see he mentions the dung hill. <clears throat> For reference, the word here, the word they use is not animal, animal manure, but human manure. <laughs> so he's now talking about the backyard, okay? The custom in those days was to have a heap of dirt at the bottom of the yard. Because you had a hole, some pile of dirt, and when you emptied your valve, you uh, put some dirt over it, and then there was a box next to it with salt. And you took a big handful and put it on the soil. That was your disinfectant to stop the spread of things you didn't want to grow. Hmm. Okay? So those two examples together gives us a negative and a positive, right? If you promoted the things you did want to grow, and it also would inhibit the spread of things that you didn't want. That's a vivid picture that Christians are to be the salt of the soil. So here we go through a clear picture. You know, Jesus always used the familiar pictures from ordinary life, and he used them to illustrate Christian life. So, you're the people of the soil. You're the ones that will stop bad things from spreading, and who will promote good things that are wanted. You're the salt. Not really by saying anything or doing anything. Uh, I thought it was interesting, the, um, the last song, you don't have to prove anything, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, but by being totally different from the environment. In the kitchen, a little sprinkle of salt is going to do. You get too much, you know, it's not worth, you don't like it. But a little salt in the soul, there you go, that's enough. But as a fertilizer, I said the soul, the soup. But as a fertilizer or a disinfectant, you need a considerable amount before the effect shows. Mm. You need handfuls in both cases. A little sprinkling on the soil is not going to do much. If you just take that little deal and you just sprinkle it. So therefore, the concept is of being salt in society with a certain proportion of that society being Christians. Being different, being salt. The simple fact is, right now, in our world, we don't have enough salt. And that's why social trends are going the wrong way. There's no way for that to be reversed until we have enough salt to do the trick. In other words, you know, we might win an occasional battle. We might protest or lobby, but we'll lose the war as a whole unless we have the soldiers, basically. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, because there's an insufficient amount of salt. So you can apply that to any situation. Uh, you know, we can read the papers, we can moan about what's going on in the world, in the society. It's because we've lost the amount of salt we once had. But we, we once had it, but we no longer have. I remember, and it's been uh, several years ago, talking about the, uh, um, the numbers in the churches going down. Mm -hmm. How many 
churches were closing because they just don't have the numbers. And this is what we're talking about here. So we can't expect this to reverse until we have the amount of salt we need. So, how much do we need? The good news is, when any society or community, when there's 5% salt, the social trends reverse for the better. Now, I know Lance Wall now says that it only takes two if it's, if it's top. You know, if it's leadership position, you only have to have 2%. But generally, 5%, it will reverse it for the better. And it's not anything in particular the 5% is doing, saying, but just by being the 5%. Until we are producing enough salt to save society, we're going to continue to work in situations that we're just losing ground, where it's increasingly difficult to be a Christian. We can see that right now, can't we? Yeah. Right now, you know, the tide is running against us, and that's the quantitative aspect of salt. A little sprinkle's no good. We need shovelfuls right now, and right now we just don't have them. The second aspect is uh, one of not only the amount, but of the distribution. Salt is no good in the box. It has to be in direct contact with the dirt before it can operate. In other words, it operates by presence. We talked about presence, not by absence. If all the salt is lumped up, just as we're all lumped here right now, okay, because we're all Christians, um, then we can't be the salt of the earth. We can't do it because why? We're out of contact with the earth. So we need 5% salt, but these 5%, if they're all going to Christian schools and churches, they won't be salt. To operate properly, the salt has to be in direct physical contact with the dirt. And this is why, another reason why marketplace ministry is so important and why we should bring our Christianity to every aspect of our lives. In a factory setting where there's 5% Christian presence, the language changes without really anybody saying anything. Think of the place you work. And we shouldn't gripe because we're in, we are in direct contact with the dirt. That's precisely where you can connect. It does need that 5%, and right now there's a disturbing trend among Christians to try to get out of the dirt and get into a Christian setting or situation. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, a man I was listening to, and he told the story of a girl coming to him and saying, isn't it wonderful? I'm the only Christian in the office where I work, and it's so hard. But I've seen an ad, it's from a Christian firm, and they want somebody. And I have the qualifications, and I've been accepted into the Christian firm. And then she looked, she was just looking forward to starting the day with prayer, being able to, to visit, you know, with other Christians, which, you know, that's fine. Um, but then she saw his face, she said, what's the matter? And he said, you've just told me you're the only Christian in the office, and now, they have no contact with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we don't think about that, I don't think, often enough. That needs to be an encouragement for us to stay, for some of us to stay where we are and to remain in the vocation in which we've been called. Mm -hmm. He put you right there because he wanted some salt right there. Now, we can pray that some more Christians join us and help us make up that 5% or greater, but we shouldn't run away and just, you know, not join the circus, but kind of 
the Christian group, the Christian outfit. We need salt in our national, local government. We need salt in our schools, our universities. And we've heard that. Mm -hmm. The Christians don't have a place in, in politics. They don't have a place in this. They don't have a place. And here is this parable. And it's saying, you do not only have a place, you should have a place. You're required to have a place. And the more we shrink back into all Christian settings, the less the salt can operate. We have to be in contact with the dirt. And then the third aspect of salt, and maybe the most important, is the aspect of quality. First, we know salt is needed in any certain amount, in any situation. The second, it has to be in direct contact with the dirt situation if it's going to influence it. And the third, it must be real salt. Okay, Jesus talked about salt losing its savor. And this is where I always got, it always tripped me up. Because who's ever tasted salt when it wasn't salty? Okay, so can sodium chloride lose its salty quality? I never understood that. And the answer is no, it can't. Okay, it is a physical impossibility. But if it happened in Jesus' day, what happened for him to be able to talk to uh, us about that? So in Matthew 5.13, it asks, how can salt lose its savor? And it's a very simple way, not by ceasing to be sodium chloride, but by being adulterated with other things. In those days, a clever salt dealer might scrape up plenty of sand with the salt on the Dead Sea shores. So a lot of it wasn't salt at all. And that's the only way salt can lose its saltiness is by having a whole bunch of other stuff mixed in with it. Then it loses its quality and a housewife of that time who bought adulterated salt that was like half sand, half salt, she'd just throw it out the door and onto the street. Men would walk it in the dirt from where it came from. And so the lesson here is pretty obvious. Christians will only influence the world if they're different from it. You know, there's a saying, the lifeboat, in this case, that would be the church, the lifeboat should be in the sea, but when the sea gets in the lifeboat, you're in trouble. Our real dilemma is not just that we don't have enough salt, but the salt that we do have is losing its saltness. It's very rapidly being adulterated by having too much of the humanistic, secular society around it. Mm -hmm. It is getting right in among Christians because the pressure is enormous to conform. You know, we see, um, unfortunately, where um, some of the uh, drag queens came and talked to the kids, and, and that's going on in our churches as well. Really? Well, I know I the Christian did see left, some pictures. They, uh, they're definitely getting, inf they're, like, they're purposely infiltrating yes. Christianity knowing that they're not Christians. Exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. And so what does that do? You know, that just brings what we are, it adulterates what we are to where we have lost some, or lost our saltiness. And it's in this way that Christianity can lose its savor. Jesus said if it does, <coughs> All it will do is produce contempt and the world will treat it with disgust. So then we have the spectacle of Christians 
trying to be creditable to their current generation. Is that what we're called to do? Are we called to just be credible? Or are we called to be different? That's the real issue. The feeling we've got to be with it. You know, be one of the gang, be one of the crowd. Um, sometimes we feel like we have to go along with the contemporary society or that we'll lose them. Um, we see that. Some Christians, their stand on abortion and homosexuality is completely out of line with what the Bible says. But it's, it, it is in line with what society is saying. Mm -hmm. So in that case, at least in that aspect of their lives, they are being adulterated with something that's not Christianity. Yeah. That's not, they're losing their saltness. So that is the way the salt is its savor. It's not the way to save society. We should be leading society into a better way. And then Jesus said something that's too often dismissed. He said, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Mm. And the answer was, it can't. Once it loses its saltiness, it can't get it back. And once an individual Christian loses their reputation, it's almost impossible to get it back again. Mm -hmm. We see some uh, high-level preachers that have uh, made some missteps. And their ministry is, um, I won't say gone, but it's diminished so much never that uh, it has never come back to mm -hmm. what it was. Yeah. I don't know in any case where they have allowed um, different things to pollute their ministry where they've ever been able to come back full force. Yeah. So what is saltness? We have to look back at the Beatitudes to understand this. And that's where we're at is in the Beatitudes. Once you've read them correctly, they're almost the exact opposite of the attitudes of the world we live in. So I'm just going to kind of briefly go over some of that. Jesus talks about being poor in spirit. Okay, that's to be despised by the world. It means to lack self-confidence in the sense that we say, God, if you don't help me, I can't do it. The world, you know, the self-confident, they're proud in spirit. They say... You know, stand up for yourself. I can do it. Um, the poor in spirit's the opposite. It says, hey, this is beyond me. And if God, if you don't help me, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. So it's not a self-confidence. It's God confidence. You know, you always like to say, oh, yeah, we're self-confident. But we ought to be God confident. Yeah. Just change that wording a little bit. It's hard to be in mourning in a world that just, you know, takes wants to joke around all the time. And it's hard to weep when others laugh or to be meek when the world is an aggressive, combative place. And then he talks, says, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay? That means those whose ambition is to live right. We're not talking about ambitions in the way the world sees it, but to live right, their desire to live right is their major ambition. Yeah. That kind of person will be salt. Not that person whose top ambition is to be famous or wealthy or, or powerful. And there's not anything wrong with those things, but if that's what they're striving for their top ambition, then they're, they're missing that mark. Yeah. And to be merciful. He talks about being merciful. In a competitive, cruel, opportunistic world, it's hard. To be merciful is to give others a chance to be pure in heart. 
that not only means to be clean in desires, it means to be unmixed in motives and not to have ulterior motives. To be motivated by simple, pure motives in what you do, like in your career. You want to, you know, achieve, but I don't want to have to put, you know, I don't have to put Margie down in order to promote myself. I don't have to spread a lie about this or I take credit for somebody else's work, okay? That's what we're talking about. It's not that you don't want to be the best you can, but we do not want to have ulterior motives and um, methods to be able to do what we do. And then there's the peacemakers rather than the fighters. You know, Jesus was a realist. When he outlined the character of salt in this way, he realized from his own experiences that that was the surest way to be persecuted. It's why he added a little extra beatitude in Matthew 10, we glance at that, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, when people say all kinds of bad things about you, you know, he knew that old saying, whether it was the exact words, sticks and stone will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. He knew that was like an adage from, that was just the, the most wrong, uh, untrue adage that's ever been created. Because what people say do, does hurt. People's words can't hurt you. So Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because if you're going to be salt in your situation, that's going to happen. People will not believe you have unmixed motives. Mm -hmm. You think about that. If you've ever said something, especially in a corrective <coughs> sense, there's people just waiting to get themselves in a wad, you know? They can't believe you're doing it for the right reasons. Satan was ever the slanderer and the accuser of the brethren. So Jesus said, if you are going to be solved, it's going to be tough. And it's not going to pay in this world, but it will in the next. Okay? Uh, we look at Matthew 5.12. It says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay? You have to have faith to believe your reward is going to be big. Because you're not going to see your full reward in heaven. I mean, in this world. This fly is a pestering person. Yes. <laughs> he kept running on my nose in worship. <laughs> so, our full reward is not going to be in this world. It's going, we need, we've got to realize that. We cannot think this is all there ever is going to be. So it depends on where you want your reward and where you're looking for your reward. Our choice as Christians is contempt or hatred in this world. <laughs> you're either good salt in which you're going to get contempt or you're bad salt and you lose your saltiness and then you'll still get contempt, okay? That's your choices right there. So a Christian loses in this world. But if you're a real salt, there's going to be a great reward in the next. You know, uh, we d I'm going to say we're going to lose everything in this world because we still have Jesus, we still have assurance, we still have Holy Spirit, we're, we still have help. But it, from a human perspective, a society perspective, they don't understand, you know, what that means. So therefore, in their eyes, you have nothing. You are nothing. You've given up everything to have 
what they see as something useless. Right. So, um, so now we're going to go on about light. Um, I thought it was interesting because I was listening, um, and this is just a little side note here, is that um, it was this week, let's listen to a program, it was, I believe it was Sid Roth program, anyway, the lady said, you know, in the original language, it didn't say, let there be light, that sounds so, you know, it said, the actual thing was light be, mm -hmm. like a command, mm -hmm. light be, and that, so there was just like that light that was already there, just be, and be in the world, and make the world what it is today. Okay, so we're talking about light, and in this case, light also has its positive and its negative aspects. So if we read Matthew, and then in 14 through 16, it says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Okay? He said, I'm the light of the world. You're the light of the world. He didn't say, I'm the salt of the earth. I thought that was kind of interesting. He didn't say that. He said, I'm the light of the world. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, but he did say, I am the light. That's something for me to ponder a little bit more on. And on this occasion, in which he said it, I, it's very fascinating. Okay, this is, here's another little bonus thing that I had not known. It's in the context of the woman taken in adultery. Okay, this is a story that I thought I understood, but then when I studied it, I realized I didn't get the whole full, um, the whole full story. Okay, it's a Jewish story. The Jews understood this story, and they could explain it to us because they're Jewish, okay? Uh, in this situation, they've caught a woman in the very act of adultery, so they brought her to Jesus, knowing that the law of Moses said she must be stoned. Okay, we all know that. They also knew that the Roman law at that time forbade any executions by Jews. Mm. I did not They're know They're trying that. to trip him up. They knew that if Jesus said stone her, it would go against Roman law. If he said don't stone her, then he was going against the law of Moses. In other words, yeah, they tracked, they tracked him between the law of Rome and the law of Moses. Okay? It's true that the law of Moses said she must be stoned. So what did Jesus do? He wrote with his finger in the dirt. Okay? Now, this is the part that blew my mind. Now, to a Jew, that means one thing. Does anybody know what that means? Because I didn't. I've heard, like, judgment. Your names are being written down. To the Jews, it says it's a claim to be God. It's a claim to be the one who wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger on the stone. So was Jesus subtly saying, I wrote the law. Now, Jew, they said Jews would come to that conclusion. We don't when we hear it in church because we're not Jewish. Okay, a finger writing. I've heard preachers ask and wonder what Jesus wrote, and there's been different, you know, speculation, but that's not really the point. It's a vivid act, and he was claiming to be responsible for the law that had gone through, and he 
basically had been talking about throughout Rome. Okay, Moses said, <clears throat> I say unto you, that's what I meant when I gave that law. That was my intention behind it. And then this was the something that I had not heard before. Jesus reminded them of another law of Moses, which the crowd had forgotten. That is, it is a very simple law. It says, nobody can be a witness in a criminal charge if they have ever committed the same crime. Mm. Mm. Okay, so John 8, 7 says, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. He didn't mean, which we all kind of have, I've always kind of thought, you, you need to be morally perfect before you can punish anyone, because that's how we take it. But you know, that would rule out parents being able to punish their children, police and judges being able to punish criminals, because no judge is going to be without sin. But he was quoting the law in Exodus 23.2. And that says, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor you should testify in a dispute as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Okay? In other words, here in this situation, if you've ever committed adultery, you can't be a witness in this case. Hmm. So then they got publicly shamed, too, because they all had to walk away. That is yes. when they begin... Yes. That's yeah. when okay, they begin okay. to go away one by one. Yeah. Beginning with the oldest. Yeah, because they... Yeah. The youngest ones tried to brazen it out, but even they had to admit that they had done it. Okay? You're, so, and then John 8, 9, I'm not going to even... That's when they talked about that they all began to leave. So, in fact, the witnesses were dismissed on the basis of the law. Okay? Hmm. Are y'all getting this? So he didn't break yeah. the law at all. No. Right. right. Then he looked up, this is in 10, and he asked the woman, you know, where are your accusers? Where are your witnesses? Are they all gone? Okay? And then in Deuteronomy 19.15, there's another point of the law. There had to be witnesses, two or three. Okay? Um, we know that was violated when they tried Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. That was one of the things they broke. Um, I'm going to interject a little something here because I, it occurred to me and I wondered uh, this week pondering that. You know, we've been talking in Kings and Nathan went to Bathsheba. Then Bathsheba went before the king, okay? And then he came before the king. There was two witnesses of what uh, Adjani was doing, all right? I was, and that, I just, there was two witnesses. Um, I don't know if that is because, I'm not sure exactly why that is. If the, it wouldn't necessarily be a criminal court, criminal, well, it would be, tradition. I guess, against, against uh, Adjani, but, and then he was judged, so I don't know if that was a point, because there had to be two or three witnesses to a crime, and Bathsheba then was one that mm -hmm. came before the king, and then Nathan was the other one that came before the king, okay, so that's something to ponder. Because it had to be legal. Then we know in Revelation there's two witnesses, mm -hmm. you know, 
that are the two witnesses before the judgment, before God judges the earth, two witnesses, okay? I'll throw that out there for y'all to think about. Okay. <clears throat> but if there weren't two or three witnesses, then the case had to be dropped. Jesus said, neither do I con condemn you, because at that point he was the only witness. And he was really the only one that could have stoned her, too, because he hadn't done it. So, yes, he was the only witness, and there had to be two, so then he was allowed, even by law, to be able to drop this. Okay? He's her lawyer. Yes. Like, literally. Yes. Because <clears throat> there were no other witnesses. It was dismissed, but remember, he said, don't do it again. Right. You know, I might not be around to defend you. My girl. If y'all get into trouble, get Jesus to be your liar, okay? He was brilliant. He showed them that he knew the law better than they did and that he was going to use the very law of Moses to sort out the situation. That's amazing. I did not realize all the nuances of this. But when she had gone, notice he said, don't do it again, for mercy is not offered to us to go back into sin, but to stop. And then, at this point, a crowd, some more crowd had come together. And in verse 12, he said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, that tells us a profound truth about what light is meant to be. It is not what we say or do. It is what we are. What he's saying is that woman would never have gotten into that situation if she had followed him. Because... That's a situation of darkness, a moral darkness. And if the man that was with her and all the other men that accused her, they were all living in darkness as well. So, if you follow him, and truly follow him, you won't get in that kind of mess. It's brilliant in its simplicity. He had actually shown them all up, didn't he? So he exposed all their bad ways, and then he showed the better way. Don't do it again. Don't sin anymore. Okay? So that there's, there's that positive and uh, negative aspects. Now the only action that we have to do as light is to put ourselves on a lampstand. That's what it <coughs> said in Matthew 15. That the light's to be put on a lampstand. Not hidden under a bush. Mm -hmm. There's a responsibility to deliber deliberately put yourself in public view. That's a difficult thing for a lot of Christians to do. They want to just shine in church or, you know, uh, but they don't want to be on that lampstand for everybody to see. Um, you might be shining by yourself, but that's not going to help anybody. Now, what is it that we have to let shine? <coughs> and the answer is Christians are to be seen for having a higher standard of living than everybody else. Not in necessarily material ways, but in moral ways. Mm -hmm. A higher moral standard of living is what Jesus meant. In uh, 5.16, he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. By being good, he didn't miss it, mean by doing good. Run out there and do all these good things. He meant by being good. Mm -hmm. You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees were all really good about those little works, but they had not, there was no goodness in them. It was all just on the outside, you know. He then proceeded to spell it out, one spirit another. Jesus raised the moral standards higher than anyone has mm -hmm. ever dared to raise them, before or after. 
There's no ethical teacher in all history who has ever dared to say what Jesus said, the Sermon of the Mount, and that's why many dismiss it as impractical and idealistic. They say it's impossible for anyone to live like that, and it is. It's not natural for anyone to live like this. It's supernatural, which is why Jesus said, let them see how you live and glorify your Father in heaven. They'll say that's not natural. Let me. There's one example on the Sermon of the Mount. In one example, Jesus forbade anyone in the kingdom to worry. Right? Yep. Matthew 25 through 34, he talks about that. And that's why you'll never see a Christian worry. <laughs> and that's why when that comment's made, we all laugh. because <laughs> Jesus did not mean it as a joke. He was serious, okay? We kind of treat it like that because we're laughing it off because it's a hard thing to do. But he said, worry is forbidden in my kingdom because it's libel. It's a lie against my heavenly Father. Yeah. It's saying God cares more about his plants, about his animals, than he does about his kids. It's saying he looks after the beast and the fields, but not for me, his child. I have to worry. <laughs> Do you see how libelous that is when you look at it like that? He spends more time on this subject than anything else in that Sermon of the Mount. That's, there's more verses regarding that. It is, he knows it, how natural it is to worry. That's a natural thing. It is supernatural not to. And you think, what kind of influence would it be if people could say, why is that Christian never worrying? In a world where everybody's having to worry about the mortgage, they're worried about the political realm, they're worried about COVID and masks. Why are these Christians never worried? Would that really be an opener for a testimony? You know, why aren't you worried? Margie has seen this. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you wearing a mask? I don't have to because I have Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's a great oh, that's a great testimony. And that I think is what he was talking about. If you don't worry, what does that do? It just puts a spotlight on you. As somebody that doesn't need to, it puts it on God. It also boosts your immune system, and worry decreases your immune system. Yep. And so a lot of people, if they get into worry, like about that virus, yep. it yep. problems. It talks about that fear that mm -hmm. is not a fear. So when things get worse and worse, we as his children should carry peace. God may not supply every little desire and want that we have, because, you know, some of our wants and desires aren't godly or it doesn't line up maybe with what he wants for us. But he'll supply everything we need. We just sometimes don't know what we need. <laughs> Truth. Jesus fixed the moral standard higher than anyone else, but then he did but then what he did was then he lifted people up to that standard. Okay? So what the church in many places is doing today is lowering the standards to meet the people. Mm -hmm. Instead of having the standards of Jesus up here and lifting the people up to meet those, the church is wanting to lower to meet what's already there. Right. And that's not going to be light for everyone. Jesus was quite clear that being light is going to be unpopular because after he said, I'm the light of the world, he went on to say, because I am, you hate me and want to kill me. 
Yeah. It's a, that's a correlation between the yeah. two. It can be painful and profoundly unpopular, and yet that is that is what it is to be light in a world of darkness. So you know, wrapping this up, salt and light is not what you do, you say, but what you are. It's what's on the inside. And they operate when you're in direct physical contact with the world that's in darkness and dirt. And we need a certain amount if it's going to operate. And we need above all a quality of salt and a quality of light that is still totally different from the society into which God has placed us. And that's all I have to say about that. Can you read the notes um, in the Passion, Kathy, so we can get a good sound on it? Uh, Matthew 5, 13, uh, letter M at the bottom. Matthew three fifteen. What would you? Which one? Uh, five thirteen. Five thirteen. The salt. Oh yeah. Where it loses its flavor. Uh, it's the notes down at the bottom of our passion about salt. Yeah, I'll find the thirteen here. Well, well. Should well. be on page sixteen. <laughs> it, it is okay. The Aramaic, Aramaic is to criticize you. The Hebrew Matthew nope, is for the righteous one. No, nope, that's K. So it's M on the other one. Salt that has lost its flavor is foolish. That's the first sentence of the note. Or you can just read mine. It's right here. You can just read. Oh yeah, it is different. You can read that part. Salt that has lost its flavor is foolish. Yes, both Greek and Aramaic use the word that it can mean either good for nothing or foolish. If salt has lost its flavor is foolish, then salt that keeps its flavor is wise. Rabbinical literature equates salt with wisdom. After speaking of salt, Jesus speaks of lighting a light, and it was common practice at that time for Jesus to put salt on the wick of a lamp to increase its brightness. Yes, I did read that. The salt of wisdom will make our lights shine even brighter. So it was the custom of the day to uh, I when I pictured that I pictured it as the little firecracker stuff you know the, the kind of potter and I don't know if it did but salt on a quick light would make the light bright so if people don't eat salt brighter. are they losing their skills <laughs> so I was uh, calculating what 5% would be of the mm -hmm. American population so we need 16,400,000 Christians, real Christians, real Christians, to reverse society. Do you know how many claim to be Christians in America? It's quite a bit. It's in the 20s, I believe. The 20 million? Well, oh, the 20 percentage. Huh? I think it's a lot higher than that. A lot of people claim to be here. Yes. The I claim mean, and who the is. The claim and who is is two different things. Yes. But they don't even really know that they're not. Right. So you're thinking those are real are 20 million? Well, 20-some-odd percent claim Christianity as their religion. That's all I'm going to say. I think it's that's the... Um, it, and it used to be higher than that. I thought it was that's only 6%. But that's even well, 70, just the claim. No, 70% claim they're Christian. Oh. So I'm wondering if you're getting a 20% 
Because it's like 70 to 80 percent claim they're what, Christian. The ones that I actually go to church or something. Practice. It's like 93 or 94 percent mm -hmm. people claim to be Christian. Not now. Not now. It's yeah. 70 to 80. It keeps dropping. So if we only have 20, they're actually real. But that's a very low number. It is. Because that's only 6 percent. Yeah. And you know. So we're just hanging off that uh, thread. I figured we well, only had. Uh, and right I, I see so many Christians that don't have any clue of really their own identity in Christ. Right. This salt thing. I think if you're going to be the salt, you have to have the identity. I think that really relates uh, to what we've been talking about in the identity. Because if you're just showing up uh, on Sunday and listening, and then you're going about your business doing everything else, you're not going to be the salt. I noticed um, after I, I'll just call it vacation. When I went on vacation and when I, what I learned on this vacation uh, made me realize how important it was to basically reinvent my ideas of where I'm at at mm -hmm. that moment. Mm -hmm. And when I took on that attitude, it became more of the 6%. Mm -hmm. In other words, the vacationers mm -hmm. don't understand the reinventing every single morning of getting into the Word, mm -hmm. getting involved in understanding. It doesn't matter what music, it's what the Lord is bringing in your music, what music He wants you as a person. We all don't have the same music. We all don't have the same right. ideas of what it is the Lord wants each individual. So. I learned on vacation to start my next day at that moment with reinventing his ideas yeah. at that moment. Because when you sleep, sometimes you're being attacked, sometimes all this, mm -hmm. and you just have to get back on track. And well, that's I think good. our six percent, mm -hmm. we maybe our purpose is getting everyone back on track for this moment. And very intentional. Yes. Very intentional. Well, and I think, you know, we, we could look around and see some of our pod uh, whites and some of the unconventional preachers that are where they need to be, but they are not in the, um, they don't look like everybody else, like they have always looked in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he's bringing people to talk to other people where they're at. He's, you know, the ex-drug dealers can talk to the dirt that the guy that's, you know. Yeah, well, that's why I think that the church system, you know, like I always clarify, I'm not against churches. Right. I'm against the system. I think that society is proving, uh, the pandemic has proved that the system is not effective because it's not what he originally intended and as we see the shift back into community and homes and doing life together, there will there will be an awakening. There will be a resurgence of what um, authentic Christianity is. Exactly. Um, but it's also, I mean, this whole message is about you have to be engaged in society. Right. And um, people need to be equipped on how to be engaged in society. Without losing who you are. Yeah. yeah. Something that um, 
that was revealed to me in the land. I love my drive, and I hate to give it up, but I love my drive because it reveals things that I wouldn't take the time. And when you're driving, you have to take the time to be only in one place, and mm -hmm. that is in your mind. Anyway, what the um, Lord revealed, which I didn't realize until you were speaking, is that it is no longer small community. We're global community now. Mm -hmm. And that when we have our ideas on our, our community, we are losing the whole idea of what this really, what has happened. And what had happened is that we're no longer small communities. We're a global community having to expand out because we don't have the, we cannot be in small-mindedness or world-minded as in our world is larger. I noticed something recently that made me just stand back and I'm going, oh my goodness. We have, and I had someone explain about a switch. We had a shift. Mm -hmm. And so I was in prayer and I was reading and he explained to me what the shift was. And the shift was that we're global now. We're not small community. We're a global community. This is a global entity trying to work out how to get our 6% in line with what we're talking about. Absolutely. That's what happened this morning. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it is very true. We are global. And that also creates an opportunity to create strong base stations, yes. apostolic centers or hubs mm -hmm. where you have the support, you have what you need um, in order to fulfill your destiny because it's not, none of the helping of our country is going to be apart from each person fulfilling why they were born. Right. And, uh, and, and I was reading in Mark Levin's book this morning, American Marxism, where there's strategic plans of how to push back. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'll be getting y'all some, some resources on that. But anyway, it, it, I was like, man, he is talking about the very thing, the Lord, how the Lord directed things to begin to multiply. And um, that is exactly what he yeah. was revealing to me this morning is that this is no longer a small community. Yeah. We are a global community stretching out mm -hmm. and expanding. It's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. It was an opportunity yeah. for greatness instead of saying, Oh my goodness, I'm in a small community. He told me, You are not in a small mm -hmm. community. No. You are global. And it is an opportunity to expand. Well, even That's Paul was saying. going after the known world. He thought globally. Uh, and it's, just a, as an example of that, uh, My Metal, uh, that business, and they also have uh, Clovis Westside Storage, they have RV Storage, mm -hmm. they have, um, uh, I think, Roper Fencing is part of them. I mean, there's so many businesses. But their products go out to like Hawaii and all these from Clovis mm -hmm. and not to mention we have the special ops base so there's tremendous opportunity for our city to be and I, I think you know we talk about that negative positive and it is a positive that you can go out and you it can is. but it's also a negative because I think sometimes people can feel lost oh yeah you're lost one yeah. Of the, or don't uh, have the fellowship right and so that is why the small groups is a new big. The, yeah, is it, it's essential. It is mm -hmm. very important. Because mm -hmm. we you know, we may be um, 
part of that big global, but you still have to have what you feel like is your church family, your person, people that you can connect to yeah. on a day-to-day. And I think that's more. very, yes. very so essential. I did not realize how the reward of a large thinker being put into a small community and finding <laughs> two or more like-minded, yeah. like-mindedness because when you are going global, when you are going global and being attacked by a fly flies, <laughs> the demon flies, global, you have to find your net of like-mindedness. I remember when I was, um, my brother, I will refer to him, and he was not attacking me, but anyway, he was um, explaining something to me three years ago, and he, and he gave me a word of knowledge, prophetic, prophetic um, speaking, and I was like looking for my peeps. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for my peeps. Mm-hmm. And, he, and before he said anything, I was thinking this, and then he told me, he said, you have to find like night, like, 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 and I mean, I just prayed and searched and searched, and so in the meantime, he said, and you get yourself together, huh? So you can be a value, exactly, very good, because I had been too worldly, and so I was listening Mm -hmm. to your um, ministry, your ministry, and I was writing down something, and I had a question. Okay. Oh, very good. Um, hopefully I can now, answer. Now, before she asks her question, I want y'all to ponder, why don't y'all ask this this, this, this many questions and talk this question? <laughs> I talk. So I'm going to talk good questions and comments next week. I can tell you one reason why is because we, it's, it's not that we don't respect you, but the change in what you're doing is that you're really bringing us into your fold, which I'm just figuring out what five-fold is. So... But I will tell you, I am a Speedy Gonzalez type of woman. God <laughs> <laughs> put you on the fast track. I, I speed up. I hear and I see what you're saying, and I really respect it. And I love it when you say, don't take offense, because I believe that. I think learning is be, not being offended. It is my responsibility to learn. Anyway, I forgot what question. Your question. Oh. <laughs> When you're a previous sinner, still sinning, mm-hmm. but in a better place, and you said, okay, let me explain this. Let me get my head right. Can a re- repented, or a repent, how do I say it? Delivered. Mm-hmm. And sinner. Mm-hmm. Come back. Or be an influence. Because... I see what you, because you're talking about the salt losing its flavor can't be restored. Mm-hmm. So if you have someone that's a Christian, see, now they go and we have to ask questions. And then mm-hmm. they come back. Well, I think they absolutely can. I just don't think that they can um, come back. There's some things that are lost. Positionally, yeah. as far as father, absolutely 100%. Exactly. But their influence. Okay, now let's okay, that's now we're going where into can. a bigger thing because yeah. a lot of us. Big sinners, or as we think, and that find our our voice through the Lord. Now, 
I wasn't in I wasn't in the ministry, so I'm fighting all these excuses. Okay, so what I'm thinking because when you're a global influencer and you know that you're going to be a global influencer, will they be able to have an influence when they've been a previous sinner? Or cannot be a part of their ministry. Oh, I think oh absolutely. absolutely. Okay. But when you look at like a Billy Graham, or not Billy Graham, so Jimmy Swaggart. Yeah. Jimmy Swaggart has never been restored to right. the influence exactly. he had. Uh, there was another one. Oh, uh, the guy that went to prison. Patty. Jim Baker. Jim Baker. Baker. He has a Yeah. It was so sad because his funny eyelash. <laughs> Wife. I mean, I actually feel bad because she lost her authority too through him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just am so, I just tell people that are but biggest I, sinners, don't go down that I road. I read this book. It's actually he, really, really he, he good. He did come back, but yeah. not to the extent. Yeah, he's definitely come back. God restored him, but again, it's not it's, the love of Right. And the thing we're talking about, I think, is not, and you know, I think even among other Christians, mm -hmm. you can have a voice. Absolutely. But... But if you, you know, but if you talk to the world, they've got that finger pointed and yeah. said, yeah. "What about? Yeah. Well, what about uh -huh. that okay. they had an affair? But they had a this. They had a that. Yeah. And yeah. and you lose that authority, I think, among non-Christians. And you're building from the center point, then delivered. I think you can have a good voice. I need you. Okay, that's what I'm. And when you're a Christian, <laughs> you're no longer a sinner. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you were a sinner and you get saved, your influence will definitely be okay. to whatever level of Because yesterday, I had this amazing experience. And the Lord was revealing to me uh, an amazing life. And it was these young adults came in from out of the area. And I get the runoff. And I love the runoff. I really enjoyed because they all had the same story. I've been trying to get in someplace and no one will answer their phone. I answer the phone. The other thing is, I take them right away. And they don't have to wait 1,800 years. I take them right away. And I like staying there. I'm not all into, I have, I have a plan of other people being able to enjoy those fruits, not just me. But they all have the same story and they're from out of the area and they're looking for something and so we're talking and we talk I get into this is and it ends up being the Lord brought this to me this product line all of these things and